have a, a little verse and then a, a prayer for the word coming up here. Um, you don't have to go there, but this is in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22, um, verse 31. As for God, his ways are per- his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Lord, we have an awesome opportunity today to understand you, your character, your will for us, how to go about our days from this point forward if we can open up our hearts and our minds and discover who it is that you are and how to abide in your willingness and how to not turn around and take our wills back. So, Lord, we anticipate your words coming through our pastor, Gary, and that we may see you and not him, and that his preparation and work will guide us and open our hearts to that. Lord, thank you so much. In your precious Son's name, Jesus Christ, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and while you're doing that, just in case you came in a little late, uh, I want to remind everybody that there's a campfire at the Leo's this Saturday at 7, about 6.30, 7 o'clock. Bring a chair and snack along if you can. Um, something that I didn't announce, we'll have a, uh, a final church picnic, will be September 25th at the O'Connor's New Residence in Eastford, Connecticut, which is 22 minutes from here. So log that on your calendar, September 25th. And we'll give you more details as we get closer to that. And then the last thing, of course, we're going to have a congregational meeting right after this service. We're going to have a short, short break. Then we'll get together, reconvene, and uh, get into our congregational meeting. And those of you that aren't members are welcome to attend if you'd like to sit in and listen and learn, especially those of you that may have a future interest in the membership of the church. It's good sometimes to hear what goes on internally. Okay, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to begin at verse number 10. It's a rather long reading, but you can never be wrong when you're reading wisdom literature out of the Bible. Because every word besides other passages of Scripture, but the wisdom books of the, new t- of the Bible are often heavily packed with deep, deep thoughts. And so it is as we read the book of Ecclesiastes beginning in chapter 5 verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleeper of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Verse 17, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. 
Behold, what have I seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given to him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. 6 verse 1. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing at all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man father a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool And what does the poor have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I have something to say to you. One day our family, we had gone to a Bible conference and we had come back, all the five children, and we had a a brother in Christ that had come back with us from this Bible conference. And as we were coming through the door, we noticed that our picture window had a big hole in it, a punctured hole right in our double-pane picture window. And we were like awed by this. What happened? We, we, we were trying to figure out, were the kids in the neighborhood kicking balls around and someone kicked it and took off and we didn't know. We asked around. No one said that there was any kids outside or anything like that. We were all puzzled. The brother that I had with us that w- went to the conference and returned to our home, he had some... Uh, police uh, training and he tried to do something with the pain to try to figure out you know if it was a ball fingerprints or whatever whatever and no conclusion so it was sort of a mystery that was left for several days we we were just puzzled where did this broken window come from i mean this is just way out of the ordinary it was a circular hole just like that broken glass all over the place but it was a double pain, so we were able to have our times in the home, even though the outside pain was broken. Well, anyway, a couple of days later, I happened to go outside, and I looked a little more closely below, and guess what I saw? A pheasant, dead, broken neck. The pheasant was right there on the ground. I go, that's the answer. And then I thought, and maybe you can think with me, why would a pheasant go smashing its face in a window and die like that? Well, you know what happened? This is what happened. We had on the living room table 
uh, a plate similar to this with uh, artificial fake fruit that probably looked to the, for the pheasant, it looked like was an appetite for him. Like this is food for the, for the bird. So the bird, unbeknownst to what he was going to face, goes right towards the dish, smashes his face on the window and dies. Why do I bring up a story like that? You know, sometimes life is sort of like that. We look at some of the things that are very appetizing, but we don't realize, is it worth the price that we have to pay to get what we want in our life? Well, you know, the book of, uh, of uh, Ecclesiastes here is, is a rather strange book, to say the least. Of all the books of the Bible, it comes across the most difficult as we compare Scripture with Scripture. And we have sound doctrine throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament. We have an advancement of, of doctrine and comprehension that's communicated in the New Testament as compared to the Old because there's what is known as progressive revelation. So just like when you're reading a book, the earlier chapters don't quite... You can't tell where the story is going. But when you get to the end of the book, especially in the last chapters or so, then you start seeing the picture come together. Well, that's some way that we can understand our Bibles, that the Old Testament is sort of laying groundwork, and then the New Testament builds on that and gives us the final end of the story. See, Solomon here, if he's the author, I'm not convinced that he is, and neither are most commentators, but it is a Solomonic-type figure, a person that has a lot of wisdom, and he's writing this wisdom book for his readers. So let's assume for the moment it's Solomon. Solomon is not promoting poverty in, his, in this book or deprivation or pietism or even ignorance. Yet at the same time, he's not trashing living it up, accumulating wealth or even recreational fun. No matter what enterprise we choose, he says, is vanity. It's all seasonal. It's temporal and it will be terminated. And the final factor that interprets it all is death. Death ends it all. No matter what you accumulate, your wealth, your prestige, your power, at best you're going to leave all your toil to the next generation, to your children. And Solomon says, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. He examines life from all angles on how to find satisfaction. But he does know that God holds the key and is to be trusted. Life is a riddle from the author's standpoint and a lot of mysteries remain unknown to us. In the verses that we were reading, especially the early ones that talks about money, he tells us here in verse 10 that you never have enough money. Verse 11 says, I, money can become idolatrous to you and rob you of your joy. It even can prevent you from sleeping because you're so preoccupied with money making that you forget about things that are important in life and it causes you to not even be able to sleep. In the Gospel of Luke, listen to what Jesus says. I'm going to just read this short portion to you that I think corresponds very nicely with what we've read here this 
afternoon, Luke chapter 12, just one quick portion here, a parable that Jesus gives. He says, he spoke a parable unto them that the ground of a certain rich man was bringing forth fruit plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do? I have no room where to bestow all my fruits. And he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to pull down my bonds and I'm going to build bigger ones. And there I'm going to put all my fruits and all my goods. And then I'm going to say to my soul, to myself, soul, you have laid up many goods for many years. Now eat, drink, and be merry. But, there's that but, the buts of the Bible. Here's an important but. But God said unto him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. And this is Jesus' commentary on that. So he that lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God, so is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. When I die, I have to ask myself in anticipation of that day, am I going to die rich towards God or rich towards myself? No wonder Jesus says, Lay not of yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves do break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because there neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. Thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So this is an important question that we need to ask ourselves. What am I rich towards? Am I interested in building riches in this world and have no wealth for God? We must realize that we're all living before the eye of a holy God. He calls it, there's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to their hurt. They're even harmful riches can be. We had heard in our presence, 1 Timothy chapter 6, that tells us the warning to rich men. What can happen to them? Chapter 6, verse 17. This is the warning. I charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. How interesting. He's the provider that gives to us things that make us rich, enriched to enjoy. It's so often that people think that they're going to find their joy and enjoyment in the riches and the accumulation of the wealth and the material things that they can gain in this world. And there's plenty to gain. We're in America here, free enterprise. Eat, drink, and be merry. Get rich. But what do you have for God? Where does God fit in the equation of your life? How important is He to you and I? Now, I don't think I'm speaking to any millionaires here in the room. I don't think. At least our church budget doesn't indicate that. (laughs) But if you are, watch out. God's going to get you. So riches may not be necessarily uh, on your agenda, but in some ways, all of us, to some degree, are building up wealth in this world. We are accumulating things. And who doesn't like some of the good things of life? People like to drive in a a nicer car than they had or want to have a better house, a bigger house, or, you know, as time goes on, things might improve in your life. And Solomon even says, Solomon says this, it's a gift from God. 
So we have to be careful here that we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater either because there are things that we can gain in this life that God is allowing us and blessing us with to have. Keep in mind that in the Old Testament, there there were things that uh, Israel, for instance, uh, was blessed with. God, God promised them earthly possessions, long life, fruitful wombs, plentiful harvest, healings from diseases, etc., etc. All those things that would make a person say, boy, life is worth living. Because if God is for us... Now, we don't have those kinds of promises, do we, in the New Testament? There's no guarantee given to us, even in those that, for those that are most obedient to the Word of God and to the Lord in fidelity and allegiance, can't be certain in, in an absolute way that God is going to give you a long life, that God is going to give you a healthy life, that God is going to give bless your family, that your children are going to be saved, etc., etc. Those things don't necessarily come with being born again. There's no guarantee that any of those things will happen. But having Christ in glory, being blessed with Him with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, we've got the best of the best. And if God be for us, the Bible says, who can be against us? You know, in 1912, it, it stated that a person's wage weekly wage that about 50% of the of the weekly wage was spent on groceries 50% and as time has gone along and of course now with homes that have husbands and wives working the percentage of that grows smaller and smaller because the wages get bigger and bigger which what does that mean that we have more money to spend on things that we really don't need but that we still want to accumulate or we still want to have in our possession. And I'm not going to be anyone that's going to point fingers at anybody for buying this or buying that. I'm just trying to say, here, what, what, is, what does Solomon say? Now, if it was Solomon or whoever it was that it did accumulate wealth, and he had obviously a very hedonistic type life, he had a lot of the pleasures that anyone could want, he had abundance of knowledge, and he was a seeker and a searcher, which is a commendable thing. There's a line that I came across uh, this week in a book that I'm reading on uh, called Augustine the Evangelist. And uh, uh, this is what it says. Just a simple line quote from Michael Fox. It says, Pleasure is an antonym. You wouldn't know what that word is. I had to look it up. It meant it's a painkiller. Uh, it's a painkiller to the pain of consciousness. What does that mean? Pleasure is a painkiller to the pain of consciousness. The implication is that consciousness, when we're conscious of things, sometimes it's painful. Or maybe a better word would be there's, um, there's uh, intensity, there's thoughtfulness, there's concern that's put into consciousness. Am I conscious about things that I do, how I live, where I go, company that I keep, words that I say, etc.? That would be consciousness. That can be painful sometimes or painful in the sense that it causes me to examine myself and bring guilt on myself and say, I can't act like that. I can't speak like that. I can't do those kinds of things, okay? That can create pain. But what, what does, drowns them all out is pleasure. 
And that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. So pleasure can be some kind of a pill almost, if you will, to dull the realities of what it is to be conscious. And I'm talking about spiritually conscious with a conscience. Conscience about your conscience before God. Let's not be like the bird that's just looking for the food and goes after that and doesn't think of the circumstances or the consequences of what one is pursuing. Someone says to lose your wealth is much, to lose your health is more, but to lose your soul is such a loss that nothing can restore. To lose your wealth is much, to lose your health is more, but to lose your soul is such a loss that nothing can restore. What are the things that we value the most? You know what the Bible says? And this is, again, the New Testament. The graduation of truth that climaxed in the one that came into the world who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we get into the book of Corinthians that Christ is the power of God. He's the wisdom of God. Colossians 2 verse 3 says, And of Christ in whom I hid all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. What can we learn from the book of Ecclesiastes? That trying to find truth apart from the one that is the truth is going to leave you empty and uncertain. You'll live like the man and see things as only under the sun. Death will be the enemy. Death will be the one that stops it all. The terminator that hinders the future. I remember when my uncle died, I called my aunt on the phone to express my condolences to her and she was crying and she said, why do we, why do we have to die? She said it in tears. Why do we, that's a really, I think, a very uh, thoughtful point. You know, because we're born to live. Life is what we want. And we have good times, we have good memories, we have good relationships, we have good people around us, brothers and sisters, family members, and so on, and we want to live. But you know, the Bible sets our scopes above this world. We have a family up there. We're going to be joined to the spirits of just men made perfect. Aren't you looking forward to meeting King David? Moses? Isaiah? Come on. You got your favorites, I'm sure, out of the Bible. I'd love to have a Bible study with your brother Paul up there and, and sit at his feet and ask him some questions. I'd love most of all to sit at Jesus' feet, though, and be with him. What would that be like? I mean, Solomon or whoever the author is of this great book of Ecclesiastes does not have this kind of insight because it had not yet been revealed. And remember, Jesus says, many righteous men desire to see the things that you see and to hear the things that you hear, but have not seen them, nor have they heard them until Christ came. And praise the Lord, we're on this side of history where we have a record now in writing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the whole truth filled in for us so that we are without excuse. You know, it is okay to indulge, but not to plunge yourself in your indulgences. There's nothing wrong with having pleasure in this lifetime. As I said, the Bible and here in Ecclesiastes is really not trying to put down pleasures per se, but just saying that because there's no finality to them, from his perspective, it seems meaningless to them. 
But for the believer in the New Testament, and that's why I want to say that a greater than Solomon is here. A greater than Solomon is here. Jesus says a greater than Jonah is here. A greater than the temple is here. The greater than Solomon. And if Solomon is the symbol and spokesperson for wisdom, and for Jesus to say about himself that a greater than Solomon is here, we owe it to him and to ourselves to say, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. I want to learn of Christ. And that's what he says. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly and hot, and you shall find rest for your souls. The author of a book, Ecclesiastes, doesn't have that rest. He's in turmoil. He struggles. These are realities. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. It almost seems like at times he contradicts himself because he is claiming the mystery of how life is so convoluted because it's all from under the sun. Death is the end all to everything that man seems to work for, but not for the believer. In Corinthians, look at what Paul says. I'll read this portion to you. 1 Corinthians 3 This is the New Testament perspective. And I'm not trying to put down the Old Testament. That's not the point at all. All Scripture is given by inspiration. But there are definitely highlights of the New Testament that add more than what the Old Testament could only say for its time. Paul says, Therefore let no one glory in man. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. All things are yours. Interestingly, it says even death is yours. How can death be ours? Because we have the one who is the resurrection and the life. He has triumphed over death. So death is not a threat to the saint. Death is an escort for the saint, for the believer, to be glory-bound and heaven-bound. That's the, that's the amazing thing about Christianity. Death, which is such a... And it is called in Job 18, 14, the king of terrors. For the believer, we can look death in the face and say, Oh, death, we we're just saying. Our sister has been given eternal cancer diagnosis. But praise the Lord, we can look at death and say, I, have, I belong to the prince of life. He that lives and believes in me shall never die. And he that dies and believes in me will never die. So sister, brother, any of us, that we're all going to meet that final end unless the Lord Jesus comes in beforehand. We have that prospect and guarantee. Absent from the body, at home with the Lord. What confidence we have from what the Word of God tells us in our New Testament. Yes, he looks at life from all angles on how to find satisfaction. Yet there is that subtle implications that God is to be trusted. He is the key. He's the one that gives all the riddles. I haven't quite gotten it yet. Not, not saying that we do either. We don't have it all. Because the Bible says that in the ages to come, He is going to show the exceeding riches of His grace and kindness to us who believe. We are going to be in an eternal classroom with the Lord teaching us about what? Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. Can you say amen? How about that grace that saved you and I? You know what's so amazing about grace is because it, say, it saves wretches. 
He breaks the power of reigning sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. That's the kind of joy that we can get out of what the gospel preaches us, teaches us. What does the gospel mean to you? Is Jesus a greater than Solomon to you? Jesus has affected all ills around him. Just think when Jesus was in the world. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He raised the dead. He went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil. He solves the mystery of the lesser Solomon. The greater Solomon solves the mystery of the lesser Solomon. So that we can truly wish one another a real shalom. What is a shalom? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause His face to be kind unto you and be gracious unto you and peace be to you. That's what a real shalom is. Those are the kinds of blessings that are far richer than the riches that this world can provide to us. That's what we want to have. We want to have those spiritual blessings. And the Bible tells us, praise the Lord, that we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Just, it is a lot to cover here, brothers and sisters. And I'm just going to co- cover real quickly here. Verse 13, he talks about the harmfulness of riches. In verse uh, that's verse 13. 14, uh, the loss in bad investments. 15, how this highlights it all. We brought nothing into the world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Man, that, that's such a simple statement, but it's so powerful. We brought nothing. We came in naked and we're going to go out here naked. We came out of a mother's womb unclothed. When we get to the embalming room, we're, we're going to be unclothed And that's how we leave this world. Sorry to have to put it that way, but that's what it is. We come into the world naked. We go out of this world. We don't take anything with us. The only thing we take with us is what's left, what we put up there already in heaven. Have we laid up for ourselves treasures in heaven? We're going to our heavenly rewards. The bitterness of life, verse 17. All his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and in sickness and anger. Wow. Talk about unhappy people. That can be the case. Maybe you're going through some depression. I wouldn't recommend the book of Ecclesiastes to you though (laughs) because you might misconstrue certain things. There is a... uh, 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 gold at the end of the rainbow. What is it? Golden pot, right? The end of the rainbow. Uh, it certainly is. And there are definitely these jewels in the book of Ecclesiastes that you can hang your hat on. I'm not telling you to dismiss the book of Ecclesiastes at all. I think it's a great stepping stone to try to examine life and what is life all about? What are we living for? Where are we heading? What's, what's going on? Verse 18 says, Behold, I have seen To be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him for his lot. And he goes on to describe this as being a gift from God. 
this book has helped me personally in overcoming legalism, personal legalism, and being bound in some ways from being a happy person and joyful. And I don't want to say happy-go-lucky. That sounds too too crude or too unchristlike. But I think we should be happy people. Happy is a people whose God is the Lord. We should be the happiest people on earth. Now, I know we can't smile all the time, but we should be smiling people because we get joy in the heart. The Bible says a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance. Are you a cheerful person? Are you a happy person? Maybe if you aren't. Now, I know we, we, go, through, we go through down times. I'm not happy 100% of the time. I don't know anybody that is. If they are, they're probably in a mental institution. I mean, really. I mean, I see them as... Happy land, we used to call it. But, um, but real happiness is rooted in the Word and in Christ Himself. That's where I get my joy, my peace, my satisfaction. You know, I think I mentioned this verse last week, and I just love the verse because of it, the weight of it, when it says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does that mean, Sister Maureen? Let the Word of God, Christ dwell in you richly. Not just dwell in you, but dwell in you richly. So many of us have the Word of God dwelling in us, but how many of it, us have it dwelling in us richly? That will be a diamond for us if we can let the Word of Christ... How does that happen? Well, memorizing the Word, reading the Word, studying the Word, meditating on the Word, all those sorts of things will cause the, the Word of Christ to dwell in you richly. That's one way of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. You know, the new man's a lot happier than the old man. If you live in the old man days, you're going to be miserable because you're going to know you're hypocritical, that you're living in two different worlds and you're trying, to, you're trying to have one foot in one side and the other foot in the other side and it just doesn't work. But the Bible says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. At thy right hand, that means my, my enjoying the presence of the Lord with me is what's going to give me a joyous life, a real pleasant life. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Solomon, the author, whoever he is, has not come to that conclusion yet. He can't as a, as a, in fullness because the New Testament hasn't yet arrived in the the end, end of the game hasn't yet been filled in. But we who are on this side, we are without excuse. So as the scripture says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can separate us? These are verses that we need to remind ourselves because we let so many different things interfere in our lives that robs us of our joy. Sometimes we need to take a step back and look at that and say, is that something really worth getting riled about? Should I really be disturbed about that? Can I not just give it up to the Lord and say, Lord, you're in charge of all of this. Whatever the doctor tells me, whatever my financial planner tells me, whatever my landlord tells me, Lord, you're in charge. Man, Trusting the sovereignty of God can make a gigantic difference in the way in which you handle things in your life. 
because, you know, it's normal. And I think Christians sometimes maybe think this is too normal to expect everything to work perfectly for them, to be good, to be healthy, to be happy, to be wealthy, and to have no problems in life. That's when they think God's on their side and that this is how God is showing his love for them. They think that gain is godliness. That's not how it works, though. Job says, shall we receive good of the Lord and shall we not receive bad or evil from the Lord? Yes, God directs and designs both of them for our ultimate good and we need to be, stay faithful to the Lord in that way. Well, the sixth chapter um, basically is, again, the same sorts of musings that the author is having about the evils that he has seen under the sun. And he references various ones. And again, he says over and over again here too, vanity of vanities, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That would be the conclusion of the natural man as he assesses life. It just doesn't seem to bring the fullest satisfaction. And because death is going to be what's going to close it all, that, that makes it even more meaningless. It's kind of sad in a way, you could say, that uh, this book uh, can portray a sadness uh, that's thankfully punctuated elsewhere that it, that it really, it's sort of like getting knocked down to say, hey, how do I get up? And then when we get up, we say, ah, I was like that and now I am where I am because of the Lord's goodness and mercy to me. Scripture says, if riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Psalm 62, verse 10. So it's very easy to sort of fixate our joy and our happiness on the material things that we possess. But it's good for us to take the book of Ecclesiastes wisdom and see that as vanity in the sense that it's only temporary. It's not permanent. It's not going to last forever. I'm not going to have it always. Something's going to give. But if we have our hope and confidence in the Lord, the Bible says he's an anchor that keeps the soul. Steadfast and sure though the billows roll. Fastened to the rock that cannot move. Grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. That's what he is described as. The anchor for the soul. To give you that security and that peace so that you don't, so you can say like Paul, none of these things move me. Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy in the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus. You know, we've all been given a ministry to some measure that you and I are expected to fulfill in our lifetime. So when we cross the finishing line, let's hope that we can close out our days and saying, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. Now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me in that day. That's how we want to end our lives. Not a life filled with bitterness and grief and down and depressed. And yeah, I know we go through those things. I do, you do. It's natural for us to feel that way. But this is, and God is the lifter of our soul. He's our buckler. He's our help in time of need. We don't have to depend on ourselves and we don't have to let circumstances determine our joy or our peace. But we have it all in the Lord. If my trust is in Him, and that's what the author in the background is saying, I'm still trusting Him. I don't get it. It's still a riddle. But God is in control. 
I'm going to believe on him and trust him. And that's what we need to do even when life gets tough. He will not move. May God bless his word to us today. And uh, be my guest. Read the book of Ecclesiastes yourself. I've looked at various commentaries and one varies from another. One's trying to find things that maybe we're not too honest about and admit that the author is really struggling to try to find out how do I live in this world? That's a good question that the book of Ecclesiastes can raise for us. But praise the Lord, the Bible is filled with 66 books, not just one book. This is one of the stones that we step on as a step for other books and how the whole picture comes together. And I think we do ourselves well when we find the climax in the one that is greater than Solomon and trust him who says, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your souls. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the greater than Solomon that has come. And Lord, for anyone here that has not yet trusted Christ, we pray, Lord, that you would cause them to consider their latter end, that, Lord, life is more than just living it in the worldly way, but there's a world to come. There's a day ahead, a day of destruction, a day of judgment. But Jesus on the cross bore the judgment for the sins of his people. And may, Lord, someone here today look to the cross and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, Lord, we just bless your name. We give you glory, honor, and thanks for our coming together, for what we've heard, what we've uh, sung, what we've uh, read out of the Scriptures, Lord. It's all to your honor and worship. So, Father, guide us and direct us. Help us, Lord, to uh, number our days that we can apply our, our, ourselves to wisdom, Lord, that we can learn uh, the ways of life, that we can live them to the fullest, Lord, for your glory and honor. To know, Lord, how to keep that balance, Father, of enjoying the things that you want your people to enjoy and yet at the same time not losing our focus upon our Lord Jesus Christ who is our supreme joy for all things. Hear our praises, Lord, as we give you the glory in the precious name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please stand with us as we sing our final song. Hopefully it's familiar to you.